0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You're very welcome to Live Line. Column here, 51551 for your texts. Joe at rte.ie for your emails. 0818-715-815 for your calls. You can get us on WhatsApp, 087-484-8888 or from Northern Ireland. You can get us on 0845785333. Billy O'Brien, good afternoon to you. Hello. Where will you be? I'm good, good, thanks, Billy. Where will you be at 8 o'clock this evening? Oh, I'll be looking at the television. It'll be a brilliant final. I think it'll be outstanding. You'll be tuned to Sky Sports watching the the darts final. And and, and what's what's the particular attraction this year? Oh, the 16-year-old... Uh, a super, super dart player. He's after stunning the whole world and he's a super player. I'm delighted for him. Luke the Nuke Littler. Yeah. And what's That's special him. about him, Billy? Well, he has it all. He's just cool, calm, nothing flusters him and he keeps going. You know what I mean? He's brilliant at concentration. Brilliant. He don't let nothing rattle him. And where are you? You're you're from uh, County Wexford, and you, yes, you're not new to the game of darts. No, no, I'm playing. I'm playing now nearly seventy years, sixty-eight years. Yeah. And have you ever seen him in action? I the, didn't, only on the television. But he he was down in Killarney two years ago, and uh, at fourteen years of age, he won it out, and there was over five hundred players in it. And he won the Irish Open out, yeah. And did did he win it handily, or was there any stiff competition from well, any was, any Irish players? There was, there was, and Barry Copeland of Northern Ireland played him in the final, and it was a great final, great final, you know. But um, and now he was only fourteen at the time. And you're playing it from a pretty young age yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm playing it actually since I was six years of age. Competitively. Yeah. Fairly competitively, I was, yeah. And how yeah. widespread is the kind of juvenile dart scene in Ireland? How much opportunity do you have to compete against other kids the same age as you at that age? Oh, at that age, there was none. You had to either, that age, there was not, nothing. But now there is. There, there is now. There's plenty. And was there a club um, where you are in uh, Ballycogley in Wexford, is it? Yeah, Ballycogley. No, we had a dart club ourselves, just a... A local club. There was about fifty members altogether, but um, it was a great, a great place to live and a great place to be, you know. But um, the darts were very strong down there at that time. And are there strongholds in the country? Is it particularly strong in any area of the country, or will you find it in every town and village around the country? In every town and village now. One time it was just a few places, but now. Everybody, and uh, they're all ahead, and, uh, and, uh, and everyone is, every, every county team now, they're very, very good players. Ex- excellent, actually, to make the county team. They're excellent players. And is it mostly yeah. based in pubs, or are there, you know, sports halls, or where else are darts clubs yeah. located? Well, uh, in England and Wales and Scotland, in clubs all over the place. But in Ireland, it's in pubs, really, and... Uh, a few, there is a good few, um, a, a few clubs, but there wouldn't be many now in Ireland. They're, they're all mostly big pubs, you know. 
Right, so all the time growing up when you were playing, even at, even at the juvenile level, would you have been competing in pubs? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, we, uh, even at thirteen, like uh, I won a major tournament in a in, in a in a big pub there. Yeah. Now, were you playing other juveniles or against adults? No, adults. It was all adults. There was no other juvenile on it. No other one. Yeah. And what what kind of a size of a pub are you talking about? Uh, well, it was just um, a halfway house in Ballycogley. Like, it's just an ordinary sort of a pub. But uh, there, there would have been 64 or 128 players in it in the tournament. So you were standing there at age 13. Yeah. In, in the final, coming down to the last shot, surrounded by grown men who at that stage had been in the pub a while. What's that atmosphere like? Uh, that was lovely. <laughs> that was lovely, yeah. It was grand. How did you, you handle know, the pressure? But, you know something? I didn't mind the pressure at all at 13. But when I got older, I did. You know, I don't know why, but I, I was grand at that age. I, I didn't feel it. I was able to concentrate more. You know what I mean? I didn't let... I wasn't thinking about anything else only trying to get that double, you know? And do you think darts gets a bit of a bad rap because of its association with the pubs? I mean, people who would have been watching it back in the 1980s would have seen players, you know, drinking pints close to the hockey and that, and it's based, as you say, in pubs. It, it's very associated with drink. Do you think it gets a bad rep as a result? Um, I don't, yeah, it did, probably. But uh, all the great players years ago, and they were outstanding, and they were drinking like fish. They had, uh, I remember Jockey Wilson and uh, he'd have um, a half a glass of Coke into a, into a pint glass of vodka, you know what I mean? Before he get up on the stage, even. And how did people function? I don't know, but he was exceptional, and so was Leighton Reese, and he loved his pints. He was a brilliant player altogether. And, and even Eric Bristow loved it. You know, he loved the drink. And uh, I had a dart partner, Jack Murphy, and he was he loved his drink as well. And they were all exceptionally good players. You and, know? and did you ever take a drink while you were playing darts yourself? I tell you, I never drank in my life. I never drank or smoked, so I don't know what it's like. And do you think over the course of your playing, what, you're playing darts 50 years, in terms of maintaining I, yourself over the long haul, are you better yeah. off being a pioneer like you are as opposed to maybe, you know, Drinking re- I, regularly and heavily. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd say you'd be better off not drinking, but the lads that the lads that are drinking, they said it calms their nerves and they're able to play a lot better when they are, you know? And so what, I can't tell you because I never drank. Right, and how far around the country would you have been travelling then when it got competitive? Would you have been, you know, travelling long distances? Yeah, I travel all over everywhere, and I played. I played in England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, further for Ireland, and I also played in Belgium. You know, played in a good few places, and Isle of Man. Right. What makes a good darts player? Um, I, I think concentration is one of the things. You know, uh, hand and eye coordination is very important. And I tell you, to be cool under pressure, that's the most important. And that's what this young fella has in abundance. He is as cool as a cucumber. You know, nothing seems to faze him. 
you know, there's lads that tell you they do this and they do that, but if they go up on that stage, they wouldn't hit the board even. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Katie Sheldon, uh, you've played against him. Where are oh. you calling us from? I'm oh, from Hallett in Dublin. Right. Yeah. And you've played against Luke Littler? Yeah, he played in Killarney uh, two, three years ago, and we were in the youth yeah. final together, so that would have been under 18. But I think the same year he won the men's, which as well, which is just madness. I think he was 14 at the time, as Billy said. Right, and do you, yeah. mind, do you mind me asking how much older than him you are yourself? Well, he's 16 and I've just gone 20, so just on and on four years, maybe. Right, so at the younger age group, you were playing in mixed events, where you? Uh, boys were playing against girls. Yeah, so when I was a youth, um, un- unlike Billy, it's kind of like it'd be a new generation thing. There's a lot more youth now playing, and there's a lot more places for youth to play now. So we had Irish rankings and things like that, um, and they would have been mixed for us, and that would have been under 18 at the time. Right, and you're a professional darts player now, are you? I wouldn't say professional. Um, but, right, um, full-time. I, I, travel, I, I, I travel around, go around to England playing the women's series and, and things like that. And what would you say Billy's the main... She's a world champion. She's a world champion. She won the world championship with Ireland. You're very modest, yeah, we, Katie. Yeah. We, uh, we won the WDF World Cup there just in October, and it's the first time Ireland have ever won it outside of... England and the Netherlands so that was a massive achievement for us Alright well how do you keep your nerve in a final on the on, you know at the big moment where it gets down to the last few throws how do you how do you steady the nerves I've been playing since I'm nine in the house and probably competitions 12 um, so obviously then I never drank um, still now I don't drink so it's it's probably just experience Um you know, and and that's what you can admire about this young lad is just he has so much bottle up there and just holds himself so well. But it's probably down to experience and just hoping it hoping it goes for you. And do you have any tricks yourself to kind of clear the mind and steady the hand when you step up there? Not really. I, I think I've just been playing for kind of so long now that you, you get used to it. Um, Beforehand, you might get on the practice board and get your arm going and stuff like that, but nothing special to it. And is there a big dart scene in Tala where you're from? So we play in pub leagues, and there's also a, a junior youth academy um, in Fedekern, and that's where I used to play. Obviously, I'm too old now. Um, but there would be a big dart scene. Like, it's a lot bigger than people think. I think once you get into the sport you then realise actually how big and how much of it around it actually is. And where was it based in Fedderkern? Was it in a youth club or again, did you have to go, you know, what, what was the premises like that you played in or was were you, did you have to go to a pub to play it? So I've, I've played league there since I'm 10, which would have all been based in a pub. Um, and that's just where I learned. And, and that's just where it was. But the youth club, it would have been in a community centre type thing. Um, and that's a, that's a new enough thing. But back back even when I was playing, which wouldn't when I first started, which would have been 10 years ago maybe, um, less, it, it was still all in pubs kind of, and hotels if there was a big tournament. Um, but as, as league dance goes, it's kind of in GA clubs, pubs, things like that. 
And what would you what would you say is the the main thing you need to have it in darts? Is it physical strength? Is it mental strength? What do you have to What do you have to have? What's the What's the perfect combination? I think it goes. I think dedication goes a long way, um, as well as obviously being talented. Um, but I think if you put the hard work in. I think there's no stopping it. And Luke has shown it. Like, he's only 16 and he's put in hard work for the last couple of years and look where he is. And what's he like? You've met him. So, you know, what can you tell us about him from your experience? From from what I know of him, he's an absolute, genuinely lovely kid. Keeps to himself, you know, he, he's a very nice young lad and I'm delighted for him because it's nice to see these things when people deserve it. And what do you think of his magic? Well, let's let's hear from his own nutritional plan, the uh, the high performance nutritional plan he has for uh, for for his darts. Is the approach changed tomorrow. Now you're in a world final. It's the, the biggest game in the sport. Or is it just do what you've been doing? Do what I've been doing. In the morning, go for my ham and cheese omelette. <laughs> <laughs> Coming here, having my pizza, and then and then on the board. That's what I've done every day. So that is a winning formula for sure. It, Right, what's your winning formula, Katie? I, I don't know. I think the, the, when we went over to the World Cup, I think it was bread rolls <laughs> as such. But um, look, everyone's different. I think if you have a routine before these types of things, and he just wants to keep into the routine, so it, it'll be an interesting final. And how did you get into it? So my granddad had a dashboard. Um, it was back shed when, when we were younger and... No, no one in the family really played, but it was kind of just in the house. Um, and I started picking up the dirt and playing, and eventually I asked my dad, could I get a dirt for it? And we got one, and it literally just took off from there. And had you been playing anything up to that, or what was your main hobby before the darts took over? Um, I used to do piano lessons, um, and in school I would have been quite sporty, so I would have played football, things like that. But then once, once I started playing darts, like once you get into it, it's such a, a busy schedule that uh, I ended up just playing playing the darts in the end. And wh- like, when did the kind of razzmatazz start? The theme tunes, the nicknames, all of that stuff. Well, I guess that can start whenever you want it. I I still don't have a nickname, um, but when when you start going away um, in tournaments and things like that, you you might make a final and they'll walk on and little things like that. So. I, I made the World Masters final um, when I was 13, 14, I think it was. And then it kind of just kicked out from there, really. Right. And you used to walk on to, to this, was it? I am the one and only. A bit of a Chesney Hawks fan. Why did you pick that one? Was, is I had a clue what walk-on song I wanted, so I think that was just picked for me. Right. So, having tired of Chesney Hawks, no disrespect to, to Chesney, um, you now walk on to this. Oh, what's it like coming on to that? Does it boost your performance? Does it steady a bit? G up to compete? When I when I made uh, the 
women's world match play over in Blackpool, we obviously needed walk-on songs, and I thought that was a good song, so pick that one. So right, no I, special reason to it. Just that was a good song. If you were picking a nickname, what would it be? Do you pick your own, or are you given nicknames? What way does it work? I think you, you kind of get given them or picked them. Like the, the PDC or anything, don't give them to you. But someone might say it over the over the world. Like. Um, I used to be called the terrier because I used to never stop talking, but um, I don't really have one as such at the minute. Right, the PDC there, the Professional Darts Corporation for anyone who who, who doesn't follow darts and the, the WDF, the World uh, Darts Federation, which is uh, what you what you play in uh, as well, Katie. Uh, Billy, did you have a nickname when you were playing? When Well, you still play darts, but do, do you have a nickname? No, never had one, no. Um... No. Any good ones spring to mind? No, uh, the, when I was hurling, they used to call me Ali because I was a Muhammad Ali fan, you know. Right. And and, uh, on the dart scene, can you recall any nicknames you heard on, on, on the circuit? Uh, oh, there's plenty I heard, but I, I didn't hear any about it, you know. Right. Um, I, don't, I, I don't have any anyway, yeah. Right. Katie, what's the best nickname you've heard on the dart circuit? Um, probably has to be Andrew Gilden's Goldfinger, because <laughs> he does it. He does it tum up when he when he uh, celebrates one eighty or things like that. But there's there is loads, and there's probably a good few that you know people might not understand that there might be a backstory here or things like that. But it's everyone's personal preference, you know. And so, uh, for anyone, for, any, for anyone who's tuning in out of curiosity, who's only coming to darts because of the novelty of a sixteen-year-old reaching a major final. What are they watching out for? What are the basics, Katie, when it comes to what you start out with, what you have to get to, and the best way of doing it? Well, I think if you're starting out, obviously it depends which uh, age group it is, but I'll, I'll just say if, you, if it's a youth starting out, um, I would say the best way of going about it is obviously getting a board, getting a set of arts, and trying to get into a youth club, because if you're around the same age group, it might spur them on to get a little bit better. Um, and then obviously just you have to go to tournaments match practice is probably the best way of getting better and obviously a, a lot of practice goes a long way with that as well So you start out a game you've got 501 points and how does it work from there? So you start on 501 and whittle your way down obviously trying to score as many points as you can to which you leave yourself on a double which is on the outside of, of the board and, and that's a little segment. So if you're left on 40, it will be double top or double 20, sorry, um, and things like that. But you have to finish on a double. Let's hear Luke uh, was, he was obviously, he, he, he got through the semi. He beat a former world champion, uh, Rob Cross, at the Alexandra Palace in London. Let's hear the commentary on that. was the question, could he keep up what he was doing? Would he regress to some of the statistical mean? Was he fluke Littler? He's not fluke Littler, is he? He just keeps doing the same thing, match in, match out. Oh, another there, and it's there for you. And it's there for you now, Luke. On double 16 for a 1-3-2 and the champagne shot. Uncaught the champagne. It doesn't need to be on ice any longer. This is a big to-do. This is a big deal. Trouble 20 here will leave a fitting finish on double 10. And he finishes it on double 10. 
Luke Littler by name, but right now arguably the biggest name in world dance. Littler takes the giant step into the World Championship final, 19 days shy of his 17th birthday. It's a sensational story. He's a 16-year-old sensation, and tomorrow he could be the world dance champion. And tomorrow being today, uh, Billy, to you, you've been at the Alexandra Palace for the final. So what kind of a scene is it? What's the atmosphere like? Uh, mad. That's that's exactly what it's like. Uh, half the crowd don't even know the first thing about darts. All they're doing is chanting and singing and roaring and drinking beer to the last. How do they get in or why do they? I mean, the tickets. Well, how much and, are the tickets? And it's, and it's about 300 quid to get in. So they're just and going in paying 300 quid to drink pints and, and shout. And, and shout and and even heckle and do, and some of them start booing, which is absolutely disgraceful. And what about, and, the, what about the, 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 the darts fans from around the country who'd probably kill to get a ticket? Are, you know, are there genuine fans being kept out by people who just have the wherewithal oh, yeah. to spend 300 quid to go along and act the maggot? Yeah, exactly. And they are. Genuine fans wouldn't have a hope of getting in. So what, big kind corporate of, what kind of carry-on do you see at it? Um, uh, costumes, well, is it? Costumes and all sorts of stuff like that. And they're dressing up, fancy dress and all. They, they have great fun. But sometimes they throw us beer or whatever, but they'll be thrown out then. You know what I mean? But it's... Uh, the atmosphere is, it is electric, all right, you know. It's unreal, but... Um, right, you you were you went there anyway, what was it, two years ago, was it? No, it was uh, five years ago now. Uh, nine, no, 2016, so... Seven. What is that, four, seven, seven years ago now, yeah. We were at the final between um, the Scottish fella and the Dutchman, you know, and... Um, Van Gerwen won it. He beat uh, Gary Anderson. It was a great final, all right. You know, it was... I don't know many hundred and eighties were scored. It was a record number. You didn't dress up yourself, did you? I surely didn't. None of us did. We we were Brown's start team from Wexford. And uh, we had a great time now. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Katie, have you ever made it over yourself to the final? Yeah, I went over there about two years ago uh, or so and the, all the Irish lads were actually playing on one day. So me and my dad went over and we watched Kieran uh, Keane in the afternoon session and then Steve Lennon, Keenberry and Willie O'Connor were on in that evening. So we went over and got to watch them all in the one day. And what about your teammates that were uh, on the women's team with you when you competed for the Republic of Ireland women's team in, in Denmark? Who are, the, who are the other team members and, you know, how are they doing? So the team consists of myself, Robin Byrne from Dublin, Aoife McCormick from uh, Tipperary and Caroline Breen from Galway. Um, Caroline and Robin have probably been on the team for years um, and Aoife and myself, this was Aoife's first World Cup. Um, but they're a fantastic team. Uh, Robin Byrne made the World Match Play this year as well, and she made the semi-final. Um, so, like, uh, we had a super, super team, and we're all quite close as well, which helps when, when you're in a team event, you know. And do you compete against each other as well? Obviously, you were on a team representing Ireland, but you've, have you come up against them as competitors as well, Your other people who, the other people who were on your team? Yeah, so in order to make the the Irish team, we have rankings 
Um, so you'd have to play in the rankings against each other. And then obviously if you're in a local competition or things like that and you get drawn against them, and that's that. Right, so you're looking forward to this evening. Who will you be watching it with? I'll be watching it at home with my family. Right. Are you, are you back in Littler to win? I hope he does. I really, really hope he does. I think it'll be a fairy tale ending for him. Um, but it, it's hard to know. Like, Luke Humphreys is an unbelievable thrower. He's currently number one in the world. So it, it's not going to be easy. But people said that last night about Cross, and he, and he played super against him. So it, it'll be a great final to watch. Right, and it's not like he hasn't, like he's beaten some of his heroes, uh, Raymond ba- Van Barneveld before, who I think he used to imitate his celebration when he was growing up playing darts. So he doesn't look like a fellow who, who's affected by the pressure. Absolutely not. Like, uh, as I was saying uh, during the tournament, once he won his first game, he was just settled. And even still in his first game, he had a 100 plus average. So nothing seems to phase him, which is, which is amazing because he's going to be on the pro tour for the next however many years if, if he wants to make it. So he, he's doing amazing. And how much of a difference would winning half a million make to, to his life in terms of playing darts and pursuing his ambition? I think half a million would change anyone's life, uh, let alone a 16-year-old. So I'd say he'll just save it and you know do whatever he wants with it. But it'll be a life-changing amount of money for sure. And I was reading about him when he was two years ago. He hit, it says, a nine darter during the Junior Darts uh, Corporation Masters Tournament. What is a nine darter and what's the significance of that? So a nine darter is finishing 501 in in nine darts. It's the least amount of darts used to finish a leg. So it's the best leg possible to finish 501. Michael, you're calling us from Cork. Yeah, Kelly. Kerry, I beg your pardon. Um, tell us about your own history in darts. Well, not myself, but my uncle, Phil Arthur. What's he his claim to fame? He, he was uh, very involved in slain in the dart club. He, uh, back in the day, there was a tournament in Briscoe, was touring the country, and uh, there was a tournament on in uh, Slane. And Big Phil, I think he was the owner up there. He beat Ben Briscoe, and that's his claim to fame anyway. There's a, I have a brochure of the occasion. I don't have it on me now, like, you know, but he was right. very proud of his achievements back then. He, he beat Eric Bristow, is it Ben, uh, as opposed to Ben Briscoe, oh. the former Lord Mayor of Dublin? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, I'm into politics. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not at all. He was like, uh, Ben Briscoe, for anyone who's not familiar with Ben Briscoe, is the uh, Fianna yeah, Fáil TD Briscoe, yeah. for Dublin South Central. But Eric, uh, yeah, Eric I Briscoe. Have, I should know that, yeah. Uh, Eric. Yeah, I should have known, yeah. Yeah, and he, he beat him where? In Slane, was it? In Slane, yeah. And do you play yourself? I don't know. I don't know. But he, uh, he um, Briscoe, he was going down on his knee and uh, saw the darts. But, um, he did all that kind of stuff in Slane, like, you know, but yes. Right, it was quite so, to the crunch. So your uncle, uh, Phil Arthur, when he, when he came Arthur, back, yeah. yeah, when he came back to Kerry after beating Eric Bristow. Um, no, he was living up there. He was living up there. Oh, he was living up there. Yeah, yeah. He moved from Kimmere up to, he's from Kimmere. I'm actually on the farm here now where he was born and reared. And did it cement and the legend back home? How, how long did it take for word to filter back that he'd, uh, he'd beaten well, he Eric Bristow? He, he was very quiet and he didn't say much but uh, before he died he gave me his brochure with his name on it and then uh, Eric Bristow Eric Bristow's autograph on it as well was it? 
Oh, his autograph and his photograph and, uh, and uh, the whole thing, right? And who has your uncle's and darts? I don't know. I didn't get those, but he, he was very proud of the, 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 the brochure anyway and his achievements, and he gave it to me before he died. And how long <laughs> and ago I'm was that? After the way back in the 60s, I suppose. So Bristow, he was still going strong in his career when he beat him. He was very strong in his career, yeah. yeah. And was mm-hmm. your uncle full-time at the darts or was this just a part-time thing? Oh, no. He was part-time. Was he a, a farmer hobby. himself? Uh, yeah. Managing farms up there in um, Meath, that area around there. Like, yeah. And how did he get into the darts? I suppose like any man back then, like, I went to the pub for a few pints and I suppose uh, got involved in the locals. And uh, he was big... Tall man, he was, I think he was known as Big Phil. He would throw the, the shades of oats over the, the bar as well at the festivals. I suppose he was close to seven foot tall, I'd say. And how did he get, like, how, did, did he ever, how far did he get, obviously, you know, taking down Eric Bristow was obviously an achievement in and of itself, but did he represent uh, Ireland or did he travel no, the country playing with the club? No, no, just a local club. So, um, it's as I said, if I had the brochure on me now, I'd be able to tell you a lot more. But uh, I heard you on the radio there. So I said I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd uh, let the country know. Just wondering, did anybody else know about Big Phil? Billy O'Brien, have you heard it? Did you hear of Big Phil Arthur beating no, Eric no, Bristow? No, I didn't actually, no. Yeah, okay. Well, put it no. in the context there, Billy. What's, you know, Eric Bristow in his time was how big a deal in darts? What what kind of an achievement would it have been to beat him? Uh, it would have been great to beat him. I, I had the privilege of playing him first for Ireland in 1976 and uh, he was first for England and he beat me two games to one and I missed double eight mm-hmm. to beat him in the final game. Yeah. Where was that yeah. played? That was played in the Kildara Hotel. Yeah. Do you still remember that last double? I surely do. I'll never forget it. I had three darts at double eight to beat him. And I missed yeah. it. And what would you say, yeah. looking back at it? I'm sure you've probably relived that moment several times since. Several times, yeah. See it in I your sleep. I never forgot. That's, that, that, 76 is a long time ago now, you know, and I never forgot it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Katie Sheldon, what's next for you on, uh, on your schedule competitively? Probably the development tour, the PDC development tour and the PDC women's series. That's probably the next one one away and that'd be over in England. So once that starts, it kind of goes on a roll then of tournaments week in, week out type thing. Right. And if there's any parents out there who are thinking of getting somebody into this good and early after watching maybe the final on the telly tonight, is there a website? Is there a federation you could direct them to where they could find more information, Katie? Yeah, so if they want to look up the Junior Dance Corporation or the INDO, they, they're probably the two in Ireland that, that can kickstart them. The INDO gets you onto the uh, Irish team and so does the, the JDC. So them, them two are a great start to kind of get some help and sort it out. And if people wanted, we saw, I heard that uh, Luke Littler started off with a, a magnetic board. You see those Velcro dart boards knocking around. What's the best starter toy for a darting toddler? Well, I think if they're a toddler, probably one of them magnetic ones. But uh, over the years, you've heard young, young kids playing darts straight away, like from two or three. So I guess probably a magnetic one. And then depending on how old they are, just get them started as soon as they want.
Right. And maybe, maybe have the children's hospital on, on speed dial while you're at it. All right. Thanks very much, all. Back after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Now, moving away from the world of darts into the world of Cupid's Arrow, Tom Hickey in Ballancolic. How are you? Uh, very well, thanks. How are you? Sell us the love letter. <laughs> well, it didn't quite start to the love letter. Uh, I, um, I used to... Uh, yeah, sorry. I had... Um, I sent a letter... Uh, sorry, I apologise for this. No, not at all. Um, sorry, I I put an ad in the the Evening Echo, uh, looking for a, a female for friendship and social outings. And um, my future wife responded. Uh, this was back in June, nineteen eighty four, and uh, she. We we met up. Well, I hadn't intended to uh, to seek a, a a girlfriend. I was just looking for somebody to go out with socially, um, just to the cinema or something like that. And uh, she um, she replied, and she was only doing it uh, out of curiosity more than anything, you know. Um, so that's how our relationship started. Um, but she was away for uh, a time uh, working in a different town so we used to write letters to each other every day because it was difficult in those days to uh, stay in touch with one another by phone Um, so we sent these very long letters to one another for uh, about four months and uh, I still have those letters you still kept them. Have, when was the last time you uh, you had a read over them? Oh gosh, it's been a while. Um, I'd say about ten years ago, but um, they're still here, and uh, I might take them out again and have another look. All right, I could, but going um, back to 1984, you sent this ad in. You were looking for um, a companion, and you got this reply. So, I mean, tell us about the first time you met Trish. Yeah, well. Um, we decided uh, that it would be best if we didn't meet in town. So uh, I had her, when she replied, she had given her name and her, her address and phone number. So um, we agreed that I'd call to her house. And um, from there, we just got the bus in town into a bar. And um, that's how it took off, really. She was still living no. at home at the time with her, with her parents, was she, or was she, she living was, in the flat? Yeah, she, she was living with her parents. Um, she had, uh, she's from a large family. I just have one brother and one sister. So uh, it was a bit daunting. It was a bit daunting at the start. Right, no, was the whole family gathered there when you called in? I suppose if you, di- you didn't think it was a, a date per se, so maybe the pressure wasn't the same, was it? No, the pressure wasn't on me, no. <laughs> Which is just as well. I think probably that helped a lot because I wasn't looking for uh, um, a girlfriend, so I was very relaxed. Um, but uh, all we did was just chat and had a few drinks and um, just discovered it 
couple of common connections. Like we had been in the States at the same year and uh, we talked about that and talked about families, etc. And ourselves, obviously. But um, we did make an arrangement to uh, meet up again. But uh, Tris told me that was that uh, she had thought of not turning up uh, and um, but decided that rather than leave me hanging around in town outside her shop, that she would uh, go ahead anyway. Uh, right. That's but, really when it took off. But yeah. after being initially hesitant, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind romance. But uh, going back to the daily correspondence you were talking about, how long were the letters and, you know, what kind of things were you saying to her in those daily letters? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um yeah, I started off really, uh, I tend to write long letters. Um, I I used to write uh, to pen pals in the States. So um, when, you're, when you're writing letters, when I was writing letters anyway, I tended to give a lot of time to them. So my letters could be up to 20 or 30 pages. Um, and I, I think... Uh, uh, when Trish and I were writing to one another, I was certainly, I had fallen deeply in love with her. And uh, I suppose I wrote about uh, that love, you know, and um, how much I wanted to spend time with her and how much I missed her. So you poured, um, effectively, That's is that the secret ingredient that you just open your heart and, you know, tell someone in detail about your feelings? Uh, well, it worked for me. I don't know about anyone else, but uh, yeah, I I love the form of letter writing. I've always been uh, a letter writer. And I suppose back in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, when I used to write a lot, um, you didn't have an alternative means of communication. Um, really, you know. Uh, so writing was the best way of doing it. And uh, I've always liked writing, uh, so I fell into it easy enough. Um, so that's how it took off, um, you know. Uh, she was Trish was in a, in a small town, and uh, if she was phoning me, she'd have to phone from public phone box on the street. So that was tricky, you know. And I didn't like uh, using her own family phone because. I'd be overheard by my parents. Right, you know, okay. So. And do you still write her cards, letters? Um, I love giving out cards. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I'm pretty good for dates, so I remember all the anniversaries and uh, birthdays and uh, so on, you know. So, yeah, we're we're pretty good at that. John, Ar- the romance. John Arnold, you're uh, you're calling us from Fermoy. Are you a love letter writer or other kinds of letters? Uh, not anymore. <laughs> what? I, I, I kind of gave up writing the love letters, I'd say, about 52 years ago when I got married. Right, once they worked, that was it. You were happy with the results. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
said it was the lessons caused the results now because I had very bad handwriting. <coughs> I still have very bad handwriting, to be honest with you. But I, 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 I still, I, I still, I still write a good share of letters. I mean, outside of letters to the newspapers, I still correspond a good bit with people in old-fashioned letter form because I know I suppose everybody just uses phone and texts and. And modern technology now, well, I have a mobile phone, a very simple black one, I suppose, about 25 years old, that can make phone calls and texts, but um, I wouldn't be into any of the modern social media, so I, I would still write a lot of letters. And uh, what I was what I was find over the years, if I was writing with a boy or like a rush letter, could be brutal, no one could read it, but if I took my time and wrote with a fountain pen, and I'd still do that occasionally, uh, the letter would be fairly legible, all right, you know? All right, well, we, you, you got off the subject of love letters very quickly. We might get you back on to it in a minute, but first we'll hear from... Uh, uh, Amy Carter, she's the daughter of Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter, Rosalind Carter passed away last November and at that funeral, an emotional, understandably emotional Amy Carter got up and read an extract from a letter Jimmy Carter had sent 75 years previously when he was a young naval officer writing to Rosalind to tell her how much he missed her. My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their partnership and love story was a defining feature of her life. Because he isn't able to speak to you today, I am going to share some of his words about loving and missing her. This is from a letter he wrote 75 years ago while he was serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. That was Amy Carter there reading out a letter her her father had sent her mother Rosalind. John Arnold, is that the kind of is that the vein your love letters were in? Because I don't know, no, because um, I'm sure Mary still has most of them, but I never got a chance to read them now, so my memory wouldn't be great. I don't know, I'd be writing about things like that, but I'd be telling you maybe that the was at the calving or that we won an under fourteen match or there was a meeting on tonight, but um I'm sure I um, I would have expressed those kind of sentiments as well. I, I, I kept all the letters she sent to me, but I don't know, especially kept the letters I sent to her too, but um, she never reads mine and I never read hers and that's the way it's been and I think it's worked out. It's worked, right. worked out fairly well. And when did the, what age were you when the romance started, when you started to write the letters? <coughs> I was just over 16 or 17, I suppose. Right. I, I suppose yeah. not. Not to not to engage in an old controversy there, but you mentioned an under fourteen final. I hope you weren't playing in that under fourteen final when you were sixteen or seventeen. Now, no, no. I tell you, I, <laughs> I found out at the age. Of, I found out at the age of about thirteen that my ability to play and holding a football was 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 ne- was was zero. So that I, I gave that up early on, and I suppose a bit of an embarrassment because she came from a very sporting family you know, and played football and camogie and hockey, and I was very. You know, when it came to things like that, I was really useless. Like, but in fairness, she didn't. Uh, she didn't hold that against me, and like this, so wouldn't would have expressed. Um, I would look. I'd have been romantic enough, I suppose, in the way I wrote, from what I remember, because at the time, 
when when you know the phrase when we were going out uh, for a while when we were going out she was working in Dublin and I was still at home farming and uh, she'd be back most weekends but <coughs> we'd write during the week and sometimes I'd get two letters back from her during the week and I'd always send her a letter and uh, they wouldn't be like the last when I was 17 or 18 or 20 pages they'd be two or three pages because they'd be maybe rushed of a Tuesday morning to go up to the post office and get them sent off so that they'd be in Dublin on Wednesday and, and vice versa like you know Right, and I mean, she got over, uh, in your own words, your your lack of sporting ability, and she got over the handwriting. So the uh, the love must have been there from the start. Yes, yeah, as I said, there's love there, there's door there too. Though. Well, it wasn't money either, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, the romance started actually when um, we were very young, 16 or 17, I got a, she, she gave me a spin one night back from a dance and... Uh, on the back of a motorbike. Uh, the only time I was ever on a motorbike, actually, of a, a fear, a mortal fear of, of motorbikes, but she gave me a spin home from a dancer on the back of a motorbike and as if it was a love, love blossom there and, and, and took off. And that was 47 years ago, I suppose, <clears throat> 48 years ago, and we're still together, 32 years married, three children and 11 grandchildren later, so you know, things didn't work out too bad. But right. I, I suppose I wouldn't be, I would, like, uh, yeah, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'd like to look at some of the letters, I suppose I'd be romantic enough, and, but as regards remembering dates of anniversaries and things, I always remember the day we were married, all right, <clears throat> and things like that, but I wouldn't be great about birthdays and things, but when I get a new diary, say, at Christmas time, I'd always kind of write them down so that I'd know they'd be coming up during the year, but I mean, I suppose, say, ex- expressing my deep emotion and love for her. I don't know, did I have to say it in so many words because I think she knew it from an early stage and vice versa. We, we, we both knew it, but um, I love her as much now as I did then, probably more. I don't write, I don't write as much so now because God, we meet every day now, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't, like, it wasn't like absence makes the hand half go fond as it was back in the in the 70s when she was in Dublin and I was in Cork and that seemed a million miles away but I still used to get another chance of going up and Cork used to be often in all Ireland finals back then time not as often as now and um, so I had a plenty of chances of going to Dublin to matches as well and that just break up the monotony and then she'd be back at weekends and we'd meet and like the top hat in Fomoy and the Arcadian Cork and the Majestic in Mallow were flying at the time ballrooms and Joe Dolan was our favourite so we used do everything I suppose that time in our own romantic way as Joe, Joe would say in our own peculiar way and it worked out well for us anyhow you know Very good Liz McGuire you, it, it's not just about writing love letters but you buy other people's love letters where do you get them? I do come. Thanks very much uh, for having me on today. I have a very strange hobby where I read other people's mail um, and I find them at flea markets and online auctions um, for my project Flea Market Love Letters. So you buy bundles of letters and are they just generic bundles of letters and you have to search through them to find love letters or are they sold as love letters? Sure. So a lot of them um, are organised already so they're sort of sold in lots. Um, but I would say kind of the term love for flea market love letters is is very broad. So I have over 600 letters in the uh, projects that have been featured so far in the last seven years. And that's from about 30 different collections of letters. And those are between bows, they're between boyfriends and girlfriends, between friends, between uh, sons to parents and between parents to children. And so there's a, there's a real um, sense of kind of the, the value of the letter uh, that the project has has definitely driven up. And what makes a good one when you're when you know when you put them up uh, online? Do you do you scan them or transcribe them or you know what what do you do with them? Of course. So 
I photograph all of the letters uh, and then I hand transcribe them. So I type them into um, Google Docs and then I put those up as blog posts on the website for Flea Market or um, I also post them up as Instagram posts. And so those go up two or three times a week and I share one collection at a time. So I oftentimes am reading the letters the same time that they're going up. So I might get to a particularly funny part of a letter and I might highlight a quote or something like that. And someone will comment and say, oh, you know, did they get married in the end or what what happened? You know, oh, if my boyfriend said that, I would have, you know, slapped him kind of a thing. And I oftentimes I have to say, you know, I'm reading along with you as well. So the stories evolve for me just like they evolve for the readers. Right. Do you put up all of them or do you whittle them down? Do you only put up the good ones or just all of the ones you buy? Oh, I put up all of them. I put up all of them because people respond to different things. So people respond to the really grandiose, you know, important days of history that they recognize from from the dates on the letters. But they also really connect with, you know, a, a description of going to the grocery store during the Great Depression. And, you know, there's one letter from the Great Depression that always strikes me, which is it's a woman writing to her husband who's gone in the States, who's gone to a different um uh, state to work and she says that she has to finish the letter because she's run out of pencil and she can't afford another pencil. So there's really just parts in the letters that will absolutely tug at the heartstrings but I don't I don't censor any of them. It's it's you know one to the next. All right. And did people I mean as as you read some of the older letters and you know maybe they were more constrained times did people try and write passionately without being explicit what's the what you know how, how have you noticed the evolution of letters over time do they come become more blunt explicit open or is there a different use of language back in the earlier letters Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the shock of all shocks is that, um, listen, we're all here because uh, a man met a woman uh, before us. So that's been going on for a long time, a lot longer than we like to think. (laughs) So the letters, the letters are very much, you know, they're, they're very romantic, at least the the letters between partners, um, because you are, you're really seeing um, the same level of kind of intimacy that you might see today uh, face to face. I think as one of the other callers said, you know, they didn't have the chance to, to talk to their partner every day so the letters are very much that that incubator for the intimacy but there's there's definitely a lot of coded language in some of the letters particularly in the uh, 1910s and the 1940s especially right you have a collection the 50 McAllister letters who are they between and maybe you'd give us an example of one of them Sure, that's a great one. Um, I have that up here. So the McAllister letters are from the 1910s, and they were written between a woman named Harriet, who ultimately becomes Harriet McAllister, or is Harriet McAllister, who marries George Tietma. Uh, But at the time the letters start, she is just dating George, and they live about 300 miles away from each other. She's attending school, a a women's college, and he is, um, I think he's working in a bank of some sort. And uh, so they live 300 miles away. And so over the course of a summer into a spring, they are writing these letters back and forth. And so the letter that I have today comes from 1914, and it's Harriet writing to George uh, before they were married in the, the latter part of the, uh, the 1910s. But it's uh, following a disagreement they've had about the pressures of all that come with marriage. So they're engaged at this point, and they're trying to find and finance a home. And uh, I don't have George's letters to Harriet. I have Harriet's to George. But I also know that um, you know it, it's a very real uh, stressor just today as it was in 1910 to kind of, you know, you're, you're about to set off and, and start your, you start your life. So uh, George obviously has expressed some concerns about financing that. Right. So Harriet says, how I ache to be near you tonight. Your note made me very unhappy. 
I've been lying down an hour remembering how happy we have been and how happy we shall be. And now, as I have been up in my room since church time this morning, and it is 10 o'clock anyway, I must go down and say goodnight. And I shall finish my say tomorrow when I have rested and my mind and heart a little calmer. The rain is dripping from the eaves left side of my window, and it makes me rather sad and lonely. I wish I could make you understand tonight how much I love you, but that you will know in the future. All right, she's quite. She's got quite the pen, uh, Harriet McAllister. I'm, I know you just mentioned there uh, a short while ago that people ask you, you know, what happened. Do you try and follow up and do any genealogical research on what happened to these people, who they were, or do you just rely on their words in the letters to tell their own story? That's a really great question, um, and I in the past uh, have dabbled with, you know, looking a little bit further into things, but 99% of the time I leave the story where it starts and where it ends. And I have had people in the last seven years who have commented on an Instagram post or have sent me a message and have said, one one letter series particularly, a woman commented and she said, my mother was friends with this woman growing up and she goes to see her handwriting again is, you know, it, it really brought a tear to my eye and it wasn't any sort of possessive thing of send me the letter or how dare you post this up, you know, I knew this woman. It was just this lovely message where she said I hadn't seen her handwriting in 50 years and then to see it randomly on an Instagram post. And that's really what I do is to build a community and to preserve the letter. And are you a letter writer yourself? (laughs) I am. I am. During COVID, I had 88 pen pals. So I love a letter. (laughs) Everyone, were they kind of the same update to everyone or were you writing them all individual bespoke letters, all 88 Oh, I was... I was writing all, all kinds of different letters and I remember it was kind of like the on-post man would drop off the mail and I kept saying to my husband, I was like, does he think I'm insane? Because it's like hundreds of letters would come. It was like the scene from Harry Potter when the letters would come down the chimney and just kind of shoot into the sitting room. That's what it felt like during the lockdown, which was amazing. Like I would spend every day looking forward to the postman and, and it was just so funny. It was He just always had such a straight face because I'd meet him sometimes when I was out for a walk and I'd say, how are you doing today? And he'd be like, oh good. And they'd hand me basically a tote bag full of mail. And I was like, does this not ever strike you as strange? And he did say to me one time that I do receive the most letters in the estate. So I, I wear that badge proudly. Well, and w- was he visibly more muscular at the end of the lockdown as a result of carrying these letters? <laughs> well, I don't know what it says, but I did have two or three postmen over the two years. So maybe they put in their notice and said, listen, I'm not doing that house anymore. <laughs> All right. And are you, were you, were you or are you a writer of love letters? So my husband and I have been together almost 10 years, so kind of like the other callers today. Um, we don't really exchange letters back and forth. And There was actually a funny one there where I gave him a Valentine's Day card. You know, I did the whole thing, Valentine's Day, put it out, said, oh, I wrote you this lovely card. He couldn't read my handwriting. Right. <laughs> so he just kept looking at it, and he looked, he just, his face just kept going. And I was like, I was like, okay, I won't take it personally. I'll just slow down next time. So, yeah, I'd love to write more letters to him, but I, I, the letters I write now, I try and write to some of those pen pals still are pretty active, but I also try and write to my nieces and nephew in the States. Right. So and I send them letters and I send them back. And the love letters that you've bought, have they influenced your style? Have they improved your vocabulary of love over your time? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's really, particularly the war letters are very influential because um, one series that I bought, I was given about seven letters from a series by um, my dad got them for me. And he said, oh, I picked these up at a flea market and I read them and they were just so powerful. And I was like, these are beautiful. We have to get the rest of them. So we contacted the seller and we bought the rest of the collection. And as far as I can tell, the gentleman who wrote the letters 
as far as I can tell now, he died in service during World War II. So it's these incredible letters that return to sender because, um, you know, obviously he's either lost at war or he's died. And so these letters are returned. And there's a really beautiful piece in one of the letters where he talks to his then-girlfriend about how, you know, he had a dream uh, that he was the war was never going to end, but that when he woke up, he thought about coming home to her. And, and to know that, you know, as far as we can see, he didn't get to come home. It's, it's, it's a real privilege to have that letter in the collection. All right. Okay, we're back with more after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colin Mungoin here, 51551 for your text, joe at rte.ie for your emails and WhatsApp us 087 484 8888 or from Northern Ireland 3. Liz McGuire, you buy flea market love letters, you post them up online. Do they affect you when you read them? You were talking about a situation where you acquired a collection of war letters and from what you from your reading of them being returned to sender, that person never made it home. Do you is there an emotional impact of reading the stories of other people, their love letters and their correspondence generally? Oh, absolutely. I have a rule where I won't open um, a letter that is closed. So if a letter is sealed and it could be, you know, it could be 100, 120 years old, I won't open it because I um, I already am on very thin ice, I think, by reading these personal correspondences and sharing them. So I do my best to present them with as much respect as possible. And I do it through a historical lens. So I regularly have to remind people, especially on the um, the Instagram and, and the website, just the idea that, you know, these are real people because I've, I've had a lot of people who you're reading them every week and you sort of, they're, they're a bit like a television show. You know, you get very into one character and it's a very one-sided presentation. So you might start to develop opinions. And I've had to jump into comments before and been like, remember, these are real people. We're not going to speculate. Right, <laughs> we're, yeah. going to, we're, we're going to take their history as it's presented to us. And, and people are usually very, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I, I got a bit got a bit swept up. <laughs> and is it competitive buying them? I mean, is there a kind of, do you meet collectors on the way around and try and beat them to the punch for a decent batch of letters? I tell you, it's the stamps. It's the stamps. A lot of people think the stamps are worth more money. So I actually had a friend who um, tried to make a gift of a collection of letters to me. And she, uh, we met for coffee and she said, I'm so sorry. And I said, what are you sorry about? And she said, I tried to win an online auction of letters for you. She was like, it was just four or five. She goes, I was really excited. I won the auction. They got there and they were empty. And she said, so I messaged, I had the envelopes. And so she said, I messaged the seller with eBay or whatever. And she said, you know, oh, you forgot to include the letters in it. And the seller said, oh, I, I don't usually include the filler. They said, I thought you just wanted the envelopes. And so it's 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 difficult. It's getting more and more difficult to find the envelopes and the letters together now, for sure. And have you ever got anything unexpected in any of the letters you've bought? Oh, yeah. I've found photographs, newspaper clippings, a lot of pressed flowers. People really like to press flowers. Um, I found a few scraps of fabric and I found a, very, a few dodgy doodles. That's what I'll say in the corners of some World War II letters. <laughs> Do- dodgy doodles. This is daytime daytime radio program. No further detail needed. Is, is that are, safe to say? <laughs> All right. Uh, John Arnold, moving from from the love letter to, to other types of letters, you, you correspond regularly uh, with newspapers. Are you a fan of the strongly worded letter of complaint? I am, yeah, but just in relation to what the last uh, speaker was on about there, I suppose it wasn't exactly a love letter, but I suppose one of the most poignant letters I ever saw 
was in the position of my late mother. Um, my father was in hospital in 1961. He was very ill. And he had, a, he had a lot of friends, but one of his great friends was a man called Jim Woods. At the time, he was a radio officer, and he travelled all over the world, obviously, as a radio officer on a ship. And in September 1961, he was somewhere in the Suez Canal, and he would regularly write back to my father, give him all the news of what was happening here and there on his voyages. And when he'd get to some port somewhere, obviously, he'd post a letter. So on the 6th of September... 1961, he was somehow, I think it was in Egypt, I can't remember now, I saw the letter with my late mother, and he posted the letter to my father, care of the hospital, it was St. Stephen's Hospital, Sassery's Court in Glenmire, <coughs> and you know, he started it, Dear Dan was my father, it was a full newsy letter and everything of all the news, and asking him about <coughs> the family and everything, and it was posted in, at, somewhere in Egypt on the 6th of September to my father <coughs> in Sassery's Court Hospital, Glenmire, County Cork. And my father died on the 7th of September, and the letter arrived in the hospital in Glenmire about three weeks later, and obviously the hospital authorities um, gave it to my mother, and she opened it weeks afterwards, and obviously it was the most poignant letter ever, because, as I said, he was he died the day after Jim had posted it, and Jim had a special bond with our family, because when I was when my mother was expecting me in 1957 and um, she needed someone to rush her to a maternity home in Cork. He was the man that, that, that drove at high speed and made sure that my mother was delivered safely and that I was delivered safely. And so that letter was very, very poignant to me when I read it in the position of, of ma'am. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, strongly about the letters. I don't know, sure whether <coughs> letters, like, do I have a name? No, I should fix it. He's always writing to the papers about things. But I suppose freedom of expression is is a great thing and I suppose it's only when you hear of countries where democracy is frowned upon and where freedom of the press is frowned upon that, that you say God isn't it great that someone can express a view in Ireland and you can write to the same paper tomorrow and express the exact opposite view and that those letters can be published and I think that that's just a, a marvellous thing and yeah I, I, I'd express my opinion my opinion I might be in a minority of one on the subject whether it is about politics of sport, of farming, the environment, <clears throat> of the jail, whatever, but I do like to write, yes, yeah, right. would, you'd call them strongly, strong, strongly worded letters, there's a point in writing a softly, softly letter saying, I kind of half think and I half wish this, I mean, if you're writing a strongly worded letter and you have a strong opinion on something, you word it strongly and, and you just say what you believe the decision has been made is appalling or the decision that should be made should be this and you have to put it in the strongest possible letter. And I, from the point of view of, of an editor, I presume the editor of newspapers, I don't know this, but I presume they get dozens, if not hundreds, of letters to the editors every day, perhaps every week. So I suppose they, they, they sift through. I'm not saying they publish the best, but I presume what they do is they try and have a variety if there's a subject hitting the headlines, they have letters in it, but they, they obviously didn't have to decide. Nice. News moves on, you know, so I'd, I'd be writing letters to the paper with 40 or 50 years. Did they ever get replies? Yeah. Did they ever get any results? Yeah. Were some of them futile? Yeah. All right. Well, there's plenty of passion in them, whether they're love letters or not. Uh, they communicate a, a certain passion anyway. A message, yeah. Elizabeth, oh, yes. Elizabeth McGuinness um, in, in County Monaghan, you got an unexpected reply to a letter you wrote. 
Hiya, Colin. Uh, yeah, um, some years ago, uh, the back uh, story to what happened was uh, I have a unique business called Kiwi Country Clothing. I specialise in gloves for Raynaud's and men's diabetic socks and stuff like that. And um, I was in Scotland at, a, at a, the Royal Highland Show in 2018 and this very posh lady walked into the shop. Now, I have spoken about this before, but um, anyway, uh, the lady was asking um, what were the benefits of Raynaud's and how did it work? It turned out the royal family and the lady she was asking about was Severe Reynolds as Queen Elizabeth. All right, so, so um, just to explain, Severe Reynolds, it's a kind of like, a, it's, it's, a, it's a condition that affects, is it your circulation? It means your, your extremities, your hands yeah. uh, and feet, or yeah. feet, is it, or is it just your hands? It can be very cold. Yeah. It's, it, it's a cold intolerance. A lot of ladies suffer with it and guys similarly would have diabetes in their feet. So we make specialist socks and gloves that are remarkable. I mean, we do a lot of extreme work like for amputees and and a lot of trauma injuries and we get referrals from hospitals. We've never canvassed for the work, it just comes our way and we're, we're a one-off unique business based in Monaghan. Anyway, um, so this really posh lady was wasting my time a lot in the shop and I ended up, it was a bit of a, uh, you know, Barney going over and back and she was being very uh, posh and I was being very practical and pragmatic. Anyway, it ended up she identified herself and said that the gloves were actually for Queen Elizabeth. So on the foot of that, the gloves went off to Queen Elizabeth and I got a letter back a couple of weeks later but then uh, I had a guy working with me at the time whose name was Roger, very posh English, and I called him Hooray Henry. So Hooray Henry turned around and said to the lady, because I told her to stop procrastinating about asking me a thousand questions about gloves and just buy the goddamn gloves for your friend. Turns out it's Queen Elizabeth. Right. So Hooray Henry turns around to um, Harriet and says, uh, Elizabeth's talking about... Um, You've been a procrastinator. She's been procrastinating right, right into Her Majesty for the last seven years. So questions started about why was this and why was that. And I said, and I was a fan of the Queen, but not the monarchy and one thing and another. So about six months later, I sat down to write the letter. And I was really busy. Anybody who knows me from my pop-up shops in South Anne Street and Ennis and whatever, I was just always on the run for about 14 years. So I, I ran off this letter real quick. I had been thinking about it for seven years. Sent it in the post. How long the letter um, was it? It's um, two A4 pages. It's quite funny. I mean, I'm quite polite in it. I'm quite cheeky in it. I kind of slagged her off. I ended up signing the letter off Ayla Shabu. I called her dear Queen Elizabeth at the start and <laughs> right. then Your Majesty when I was having a slag at her. But I mean, it's on the record, according to Harriet. And actually, Harriet rang me three days before Christmas. You know, we still communicate now. And she's a Windsor married to a Bowes Lion. She's Harriet Bowes Lion. But uh, part of the letter, um, I went to say, if I just scroll it up here real quick, um, about the way um, she pronounced, when you stood up to speak in Dublin Castle, when you stood up to speak and uttered those immortal, phonetically perfect words, I was overwhelmed. Very few people here in Ireland would pronounce those words as perfectly as you did. And I don't want to say the impact I thought and believed that she had and like what she did in four days being here and 40, 40 years we had of trying to have political negotiations right. or whatever. And I just said, you know, I just said some really nice things to her and I said, basically what she done, I created a genuine seismic shift in our hearts and our minds. Your good self, Queen Elizabeth, made this happen, blah, blah, blah. Right, so d- d- despite the slagging, what, what was what, despite yeah. the slagging she wrote back to you? So then I get a letter back uh, a few weeks later, and uh, the third paragraph of the letter. The first letter was sort of more it was grand and very nice and thank you and this is great and wonderful and the gloves are great and everything's fabulous. 
and the second letter came and the third paragraph started. I think you would like to know Her Majesty was deeply moved by your letter and this and that and the other and whatever was in the letter. But what happened was the following summer, I'm back in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and Harriet doesn't walk into the shop. She runs into the shop and she kisses me. Oh, my God, your letter was so, the Queen was so. And she started telling me about the Queen reading the letter out to different people in the room and quoting parts of the letter. And she said she weeped and she laughed. And she said it was the most memorable letter and the most emotional letter she ever received. Right, and the Queen's not the only person you've communicated with. You you started a thing called Mad About Monaghan. You didn't track down a Monaghan connection for the Queen, did you? Uh, there's a couple of... Uh, well, that's another story. I'll come to that another day, not today, but right. I, I did start well, a thing throw, called Mad About Monaghan. Yeah, throw, throw out a couple of celeb names who have Monaghan connections there. Uh, well, Paul McCartney, we're working on that through Mad About Monaghan. He already has our the first letter. Right. And not alone has he got the first letter, he got the story about why a Monaghan man brought this to the fore, how, why the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album, how it got its title, that comes back to Monaghan. We also had in lockdown, Ollie Gibson built a genuine big yellow submarine up in Liston Long in Monaghan. And I sent him a, a GEA jersey from 1988 with number seven, McCartney on the back of it. Now, we have to follow up with stage two of that. But right. just before we hang up, Clint Eastwood is on my radar. The letter is written. He has been to Monaghan three times. The first time in 1988, his mother's family hailed from Monaghan. All right, okay. And he was particularly close with his mum. So he made two subsequent trips. So I, I'm on a mission. I'm going back to, I'm in and out of America now doing Mad About Monaghan and Sailor Oriole stuff. So I have a plan to move our Clint Eastwood to the next stage now, St. Patrick's Week, right. when so I get to America. So the answer to the Dirty Harry question of are you feeling lucky is yes. We'll take a break. We're back after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe! Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Colm O'Mungain here. Maggie Holland, you're calling us from Donny Carney. Well, yes, I am Colm, although I'm actually from Monaghan. Oh, you're all, you're <laughs> like another, another, another Monaghan person. <laughs> another Monaghan woman. Who is, who we isn't? must be uh, famous for letter writing in Monaghan. <laughs> all right. And so you, you are a letter writer. Are you a writer of love letters? No. Not really, not not romantic love letters. Right. But, but you... um, I guess I'm often moved to write. Well, when I say I'm often moved to write, I often write letters in my head that don't ever go anywhere. But every now and again, I actually get one that that gets sent. And in this case, I got one that was replied to, so that was even better. And tell us who, who you wrote to and what, what, what reply you got back. So I wrote to Liam Clancy and... Uh, I wrote the day after I'd been to a concert in the concert hall, which had moved me a lot. And um, he had been very, very ill at the time and he came on stage. And despite the fact that they had announced at the start of the show that he wouldn't be able to perform because he was too ill. And so they offered people their money back. But um, myself and my husband decided to stay because they said he had some friends who were going to perform and I, I can't even remember exactly who was there, but I know Finn Barfury was one of them. Anyway, it was a lovely concert. But at, after the interval, Liam came on and he performed and he was incredible. And I was very moved and uplifted. And so anyway, the next day I wrote a letter and I didn't have any address from him. So I sent it to his manager and his manager then 
sent it on. And I think within a day or two, yeah, actually the next day I got a a letter back from Liam Clancy and this was by email. So um, I can read it if you like. If you, yeah, if you you give us a short extract of it because we obviously have to to use it three o'clock. Yeah, so it just said, Dear Margaret, you have no idea what a boost your email gave me. Never doubt that you have the soul of a poet and the mind of a philosopher. I have pulmonary fibrosis and my doctor and specialist left messages on my answering machine saying I must not do either concert. It would be dangerous. I was determined to prove them wrong and the first night I did. When all my energy was gone the next day it played on my mind that perhaps they were right. I hoped that a day of rest and a saturation of oxygen would let me do the Wednesday concert but the stress just weakened me more. Eventually I had to tell my agent to give the audience the option to ask for their money back. To see so many old friends show up to help raise my heart I knew I had to join them for a finale. But when you saints beyond the footlights give me such a tsunami of positive energy, I could probably have done an hour. The doctor's words came to me and I thankfully headed for my bed. You are so right. The reservoir of love is working its healing, helping me to face the future. My next project when I'm fit are not stressful. An album of poetry, a reading of Yeats' poems at the National Library and some narration of a documentary film we're making called The Yellow Bittern. I get to play the bird. All nice. I can say is thank you, thank you, thank you. Love, Liam Clancy. Right. So that was that was very special um, and, and possibly one of the last, I think maybe the last concert he did. All right. And, and thank you indeed to you, Maggie Holland, as well. That's our lot for today. On sound, Tommy O'Sullivan, a broadcast coordinator with Shane Galvin. Producer today was Shan O'Gorman. Ray Darcy's next. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.